0: Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. This is episode six of Through Nicaea. Uh, This was not the planned episode six, and I'll discuss that here in a second. But we finally finished all of the historical background of Through Nicaea, and now we'll get into the creed following this episode. Um, This episode was not planned, um, and so this episode will be published the same week as episode seven, whenever we get into the creed. And I want to do that because I know that you guys have been Wanting to dive into the Creed itself. But at this point, I have actually recorded episodes 1 through 10. And I spent some time in the beginning of episode 10 just um, seeking to give some encouragement to listeners as the show moved into the harder discussions of the Creed. And I ended up wanting to um, just make an episode focusing on that, on humility, theological preliminaries real quick. And then I'll publish it the same week as the first line of the Creed. So this is going to talk about like the fundamental backbone of Trinitarian theology and humility uh, when approaching the subject. And the reason why I wanted to do that was because—well, um, for a number of reasons. But I honestly can't remember what I've said prior to this in terms of encouragement, because I've recorded, like I said, episodes 1 through 10. Um, but I added in an application section to each one of these episodes coming up. So there's, again— the historical background of each line of the creed, then you have the biblical support, and then you have the application section. And the reason was to show that theology affects practice, right, and it has a real impact on the day-to-day, but also to show why it's worth getting into these ideas, or why it's worth having these ideas down on a basic level. So at this point, I am here, after recording episode 10, and actually deleting it in order to revise and expand it, I am recording this prelude. Uh, this episode has three purposes. Again, the first to share a struggle, the second to provide the bare bones of the creed, um, meaning what needs to be understood on a fundamental level coming out of the creed, and the discussing the limitations of human reasoning and analogy. And those are kind of mixed and matched throughout this as we go through it. Um, so, with all that said, I wanted to start off by saying I understand the struggle and the feeling of being overwhelmed with some of this information. Um, in fact, I feel like I keep being taken aback to this moment in undergrad when I first read about the Trinity, and it was the most elementary discussion you could possibly have on the subject, uh, however you want to conceive that. But I just remember sitting there reading it and thinking, I am simply not smart enough to understand this. And I told my wife the same thing. I was like, I'm never going to get this. And so if you asked me back then if I would ever be discussing what I'm discussing now, I'd emphatically say no. Now, Now, there was a struggle then. But there's still a struggle now, and it's still a wrestling now through these concepts. And so I wanted to really just throw that out there that I've been rereading and reading and researching and rereading, constantly trying to wrap my head around some of these impossible concepts whenever you start getting really into the weeds. But, but the whole point is that while I can have a, an understanding of the debates leading through Nicene and Constantinople, I don't have it figured out. I can understand a fraction of the historical information and the theological debates I can understand some of Athanasius. Athanasius is where I've been leaning the most, and Gregory of Nazionis. And so I've been leaning there the most. But there's other writers that I haven't been leaning into as much. And so uh, I want to make it clear that while we go through all this, the impression can be, from an outsider's perspective, that I have this all locked down in my mind, and I've comprehended it. And some of you already know that that's not possible, which is great. But I just want to just lay it out there, that no, I'm still working through it. Many of the concepts that are more into the weeds, I've just been rereading over and over again. And there's a reason why theological minds, even after writing their tomes on this stuff, revised and came out with different editions, because this is not something that you can just comprehend, you're good, check it off the list. Well, I mean, you can, but I would say that that's kind of naive. The greatest theological minds wrestled with some of these concepts, and these discussions are still occurring for a reason. So with with that all said, just know that while you're listening to these episodes and working through these concepts, there are others who are laboring through them as well. We all do. We all labor through them. Um, and sometimes the best thing to do is to grasp the fundamentals, sit back and have that. That's what it is. From there, I'm good. Um, but don't let the challenge of... You know, whatever concepts deter you from pressing into these topics, rather uh, lean into them and at the forefront of your mind, just marvel at the majesty and the largeness of God. Make it a point of devotion to see how holy and how large God is. And yet, He still stoops down to reveal Himself to us. And yet, while we know of God and come to love Him and grow in relationship with, with the triune God, we still don't completely understand or comprehend the largeness of his glory, right? We we reread the same books of the Bible and still come out with awe and devotion. So whenever we come to these topics of the the fundamental nature of God and, and the Godhead, um, let that move you to devotion too. You chew on the truths that we speak about in Nicaea, and let God's glory really just shine, and really let it move you into awe and to beauty. Let the theology become doxology, right? That's the famous the fam- famous uh, axiom. So while there is challenge um, and everyone's at a different place, everyone's at a different level. There's always challenge. Everyone's at a different level. Uh, but we only, no matter who you are, grow whenever you're put under that pressure and push to stretch and learn. You cannot learn a new skill unless you try, right? And it's the same concept with with intellectual activities. Um, so don't let the discussions intimidate you or scare you off, but rather let them humble you and move you to worship. Humility is a key to learning. So, a pastor uh, and friend of mine named Jesse, uh, you may know him as the Rambling Preacher on Instagram, and his podcast with the same name, he stated recently, uh, quote, those who are humble and hungry will grow the quickest. At times, it can be difficult to keep this hunger, especially when you begin to feel as though you have a decent grasp on what you believe and your personal theology. But I'd encourage you, Childlike faith always asks the Lord more and more questions in order to learn, whereas childish faith can't handle his answers and never learns. Childlike faith trusts the Lord in the midst of doubt and openly wrestles with these things. Childlike faith is humble, end quote. And that's exactly the case, right? Like, uh, you think about anything. When do we stop learning? When we think we know everything and there's nothing else to learn, right? Uh, but even the expert... In the most simplest of fields, pretend like the most simple field, like just imagine the most simple field in the world. The expert in that field only knows a fraction of the world's knowledge. The expert in one field still has more to learn in their own field. And they still know less, right, than others in their own respective fields. The reality is that the more you learn, the more you realize, the less you know. But that gives you more room to learn and grow. So now if we apply all this, this the simple truth of the basic human knowledge of earthly things to the things of God, then we we quickly realize that we know not even a drop in a bucket, right? That fraction of a fraction of our expertise is now a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. Uh, Gregory the theologian, one of the Cappadocians, right? Um, he had a handful of wisdom on the subject in his theological orations, it's a great, um, great thing to read through. But he spends a good amount of time talking about the reverent nature of theology and how we should be very careful about how and what we say about God regarding our theology because it can never fully comprehend the mystery of God. Theology is a reverent study, and what we are saying reflects God's revealed word and God's revealed nature. And that's a big thing to start making claims about, right? So we need to be reverent and careful. In fact, Gregory even goes so far to say that uh, a lot of people who, who talk about theology really just shouldn't. Um, and it's a it's a very humbling um, opening to his orations. But in oration twenty-seven, Gregory notes that those who begin to go into these discussions on the Trinity should seek to show care for others and not just to find interest in fame or showcasing their own brilliance, right? Further, he encourages believers to meditate upon the things of God more so than engaging in continuous theological discussion. It's just a very interesting point to consider in our own lives. Are we meditating upon these things of God as much as we are discussing them? It's a great question. So what you see is that these writers who influenced Constantinople, Athanasius, and the two Gregories, and everyone else who came before, really, they all had this idea of reverent, Careful consideration and discussion when it comes to theological matters, and I think that's an important one to keep in mind for us, especially because, um, in our day and age, we just don't have that. We don't, we don't take time to be slow to speak. How about that? Um, but it's also important because sometimes we'll be reading them, and we'll see something like eternal generation of the Son. And that seems like speculation to us, right? And so these individuals who put this weight on really reflecting uh, and not going beyond uh, into speculation are saying things that we think are speculative, which is very interesting. And we'll deal with those topics later when we get to them and explain them and the scriptural basis for them and how they came about. But it's important to note that the writers would often caution against that speculation, uh, they would even say that you shouldn't bother trying to conceive uh, these deeper things of God in vain discussion beyond human limitation. In fact, uh, I can't remember which writer it was, but there was one early Christian writer who said, "I wish I didn't have to discuss this, but I I have to because of these errors that have crept up." Um, and so they they were wrestling through this too, um, and so we owe a lot to them really. But uh, whenever you read the writings of Gregory and Athanasius, you'll find that very often. Uh, the errors that arose against sound Christian teachings were due to over-rationalistic ideas that brought God down to our level and ultimately declared that God's nature must look like our own. And that's really nothing different than what we see today. So while some of the discussions seem like speculation to us, the Orthodox writers were quick to uphold the obvious tensions in Scripture uh, that there were three persons who were all co-equally God And yet there's one God without dragging God down to human rationality or analogy where um, Jesus is by extension the father in a different mode, right? Modalism or 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 creature or a mere man, adoptionism or um, Arianism. So they were fine with these tensions and they said that we should uphold these tensions, but they still sought to, with conviction and deep reflection, um, expound on what scripture said in relation to the triune Godhead. Uh, in order to speak against those who contradicted sound teaching, um, namely regarding the full deity and humanity of the sun. So whenever we boil everything down, the Trinity is a hard discussion. It just really is. And as soon as you think that you understand the Trinity, you realize that there's more to it that you don't understand. Uh, and we can't fully comprehend it. Again, uh, the fact that we can't really is not too surprising uh, because... Uh, God is bigger than us, period. Um, And these discussions, again, continue for a reason. Uh, The point remains, at some level, we have to be content holding these tensions like the early writers in hand in order to not compromise the clear teachings on the nature of God. Is the Trinity difficult to comprehend? Yes. Am I content to hold to that because that's the clear teaching of Scripture? Yes. Can I explain it all? No, no. But I'm still going to lean in on what the clear teaching of Scripture is, instead of reducing Jesus like the Arians did to a creature, or the Holy Spirit to a creature or a force, right? Holding those tensions, at some point you just have to hold the tension in faith. Um so these discussions again continue, and we don't want to compromise the clear teachings on the nature of God. And as I write this, again, I'm still studying and reading on these subjects, and I'm working through specifically the filioque to have my own position. Um, And I still struggle with Generation of the Sun. It's a hard topic. But even here, Gregory is wise here, right, on Generation of the Sun. He asks the heretics of his day, Why must you pretend to understand the Generation of the Sun so well when you cannot fathom your own generation? Can you explain the formation of the soul and how it meets the body? Yet you pretend to explain the Generation of the Sun. And that wasn't verbatim. That's my own words. But the whole point is that, As humans, we can barely fathom human things. So now we're going to start saying that we completely understand the divine things? Like, the audacity to believe that we had that capability is quite profound. Um, We are limited to our finite minds, and we do have divine revelation, which informs us, but there's always going to be a level of understanding we won't have. Um, Additionally, the writers will push into faulty nature of human analogies, but they are happy to use them with those caveats and qualifications. We often kind of um, talk about how analogies of the Trinity all break down and fall apart and how we shouldn't use them at all, but um, I think there's a place for them if you add the proper caveats and qualifications as the early church writers did. And you see that with the sun, not not Jesus the sun, but the sun as in you know the, the celestial sun, right? Um, the S-U-N. But they'll use that analogy of the sun, its rays, and its heat to describe how there was never a time when the sun existed without rays and heat, just as the father never existed without the sun and the spirit. And of course, you could you could pick that to death and say, well, the sun is a created thing. So therefore, I mean, all analogies will break down. And again, they even go into how language can fail us. And we still see this in terms of the word person. The word person, especially in our contemporary context, is very difficult um, and so we're going to actually define person here a little bit. But the usage of person is ultimately inadequate. Um, for us, person is an uh, autonomous individual. And so you'll hear something like the Trinity is like humans who have one nature and a father, a son, and a mother being three persons. But what's the problem of this? Well, that's tritheism, the doctrine that there are three gods. And that's really one of the fundamental problems with what's called the social trinity uh, but we're not going to get into that because that's a post-Constantinople uh, issue. Um, and then, what if you have a man who is a father or son and a grandfather? Well, what's the problem with that? That's modalism. So uh, so let's go ahead and just get into the fundamentals, right? We're going to talk about the vital points of Trinitarianism that need to be thought through. Um, they're not easily comprehensible. Uh, this is just the basics before we get into the creed. Um, and this is all... Classical Trinitarianism, as it was fully articulated in a post-Constantinople setting. So beginning with defining person. um, As mentioned prior, our modern setting uh, defines personality and person as the center of self-consciousness. And this denotes a separateness and autonomy. Uh, I'm going to bank on Stephen Wellham here in his book, God the Son Incarnate. Great book on Christology. You'll never need another one, in my opinion. Um, He says, the best known definition of person that captures the basic parts in a unified description is the one we have learned from Bothenis. Hopefully I say his name right. He says, an individual substance of a rational nature. By individual substance, he referred not to a concrete object, but to the I or the active subject subsisting in a nature. The subsisting singular that exists through itself and in itself, according to the irreducible mode. As a complete whole, a hypostasis that exercises the act of existing on its own account. Um, To put it another way, quoting Bavnik, he says, A person is the owner, possessor, and master of a nature, a completion of existence, sustaining and determining the existence of a nature, the subject that lives, thinks, and wills and acts through a nature with all of its abundant content by which the nature becomes self-existent and is not an accident of another entity. Um, so the person is the I. It is the active subject that acts through a nature. Um, Wellen moves on from here to discuss the distinction between the divine and the human persons. And this is crucial. The divine person is the archetype. Um, the human person is that which follows. And there's some similarity, but there's significant discontinuity between them, right? Um, whenever we talk about the three divine persons of the Trinity, They subsist in a single essence. Their distinction is found in their relationship to one another and their properties. So the Father is distinguished from the Son because the Son is begotten by the Father. The Son is distinguished from the Father and the Spirit because the Son is generated. And the Spirit is distinguished from the Son and the Father by His spiration or eternal procession. So the divine person subsists in their identical single nature. And the contrast is the human person. Human persons subsist as individuals in their own individual and concrete human nature. Human nature is fundamentally different because it has a concrete nature to it, right? We have body and soul and organic matter, right? And so if we compare the two, what we find is, of course, no human shares... A concrete nature with another human nature. I do not share the nature of my wife except from being humankind. There are many humans and all of us as persons subsist in our own concrete nature. So I do not subsist in my wife's nature. We are two humans and two persons. No human shares a concrete nature with another human nature. All human beings have the same kind of nature, human nature, but human persons subsist in their nature individually and separately. That's, we understand that. We we see each other. We know that every person has their own concrete nature, but for God, the father, son, and spirit possess a singular same nature equally, and they're distinguished by their different modes of subsistence. That is, the Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, and the Spirit is the Spirit. So here we have this indivisible union of the three persons where there must be a point to uphold both the distinctiveness of the persons and the oneness of God's nature or being. There is one God with three persons subsisting in the one singular being of God. So the ground floor, again, there's one God. In God, there are three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is God. Each is whole God, and none are more God than the other. None is higher or lesser in status. There is no degree of deity. The external works of the Trinity are indivisible, which means that all three persons operate inseparably. God has one will and one mind. There is not three separate volitional centers in God, and if there were, we would have tritheism. Uh, the Trinity works inseparably in decree and purpose indivisibly. Further, the three persons mutually indwell one another in communion. These three persons, or hypostasis, occupy the same infinite divine space where the dynamic relation exists, bound together in love. Uh, and so this concept of mutual indwelling of the persons is called perichoresis. And this concept is that in regards to time, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit fill the same time, that is eternity, because each person is unoriginated, endless, and eternal. In regards to space, all persons occupy and fill the same space. Each is omnipresent, yet unconfused with each other. This indwelling has no human analogy, uh, which makes for a very difficult concept for us to understand. But the the point being is that we see God revealing himself as the one God, yet triune, acting in each particular manner. In creation, we see the triune God. The Father, through his word, creates by the Holy Spirit. And that's just one example, because when it comes to the economic trinity, you see this as well. The The Father sends the Son, the Son does the work of redemption, and the Spirit applies the work of redemption. Um, So whenever you see I and the Father are one, you have both this concept of subsisting in one nature, unity of mind, unity of will, you have this unity in dwelling, I am in the Father, the Father is in me, all of these concepts are found in scripture, Uh, these are just the technical articulations that flush us all out. Um, So with all this, the three persons are irreducible. So the ontological trinity um, is revealed in the economic trinity. So the Son took on flesh and added to himself a human nature. And he did this for eternity. Uh, The Father and the Spirit did not become incarnate. The Son is forever united to humanity, which demonstrates further this distinction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there is no subordination within the Godhead. Uh, There's no rank or hierarchy in the Trinity. But there is an order among the persons. Uh, you see this, from the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of debate about the prepositions in regard to the Holy Spirit, uh, which is quite fascinating, but we're not on time for that. Uh, the order differs in some instances, but the notion is that the Father sends the Son, the Son does not send the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, or if you're in the West, Father and the Son, and the Father never proceeds from the Holy Spirit. And those discussions we'll get into later. Um, so the bare bones, whenever we're looking through This creed is that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. There's one will of God, there's one mind of God, there's one nature of God in three persons. None is subordinate, but there is a logical order, though not in hierarchy. And the last thing to know here, is because I keep seeing this show up on forums and stuff, is that whenever you look at the Gospels, and you see the Son expressing His will in unison with the Father's will... You have to understand this in the framework of the Incarnation, which is really discussed mostly in uh, Chalcedon 451. But you see that Christ, according to Chalcedon, has to have two minds, the divine mind and the human mind. Otherwise, he, he can't redeem the human mind. He has to redeem the whole human person. So he has two minds, two wills. He has divine and human. And so his obedience of the human will is crucial for our salvation. He is the second Adam. And so whenever you see this Idea where there are two wills at play, the father and the sons, it is best to keep this in mind. And not only that, whenever it comes to the obedience of the son, you can think of it in this way as well. As the divine son, there was no disagreement in his coming to earth to be obedient. There was a unison, and will. Or um, Robert Latham says, instead of saying in harmony, it is a uh, accord. You have these three notes, and they play the single chord, which, of course, as analogies, can break down. So the bare minimum, especially for the debates on Arianism and the debates on who are called the the spirit fighters and the Gnostics, is that there is one God, three persons, each is entirely God, and there is a distinction between them. So there's there's no modalism where the Father becomes the Son and the Son becomes spirit. the Spirit. The Son is not partially divine. He is truly God and truly man. Uh, and that gets fleshed out more with Chalcedon, which, like I said, we're not going into that. And the Spirit is truly God as well and to be worshipped and adorned with the Son. So all of the weeds we're going to flesh out later. And um, I hope that this helps set up the Creed as we go through it. And we'll be explaining... A lot of these concepts again, but I wanted to begin by explaining them because if I start if I start talking about persons, if I start saying uh, the person, and we're thinking of our individual persons in this contemporary setting in 2022, where it's all about individuality and autonomy, and we all have our own concrete nature, and we're all persons, then we're going to have an issue. And so it was it made sense for me to say, you know what, I'm going to go back. I'm going to lay out the the bare minimums, I guess, of Trinitarian theology. And then we can go through the creed. And whenever I say person, I don't have to worry so much about, well, I didn't explain that because now I have. Um, So hopefully this was helpful in some shape or form. It's a hard topic. Press through it. Make it devotional. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and love your neighbor. It is a beautiful work of God to have our fellowship and communion in the triune Godhead. We get to partake in the divine nature. We have fellowship with the Father through the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have God in us. We are temples of God. We are being conformed to the image of Christ, the true Son of God. We now share in the incorruptible seed. We now have defeated death. And death is now merely a highway to glory with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit indwells, empowers us, and tells us that we are adopted as sons because we have believed in Him, Christ. Not only that, but we are putting away sin to look more like the glorious Christ, and we will reach perfection, a day when there's no more sin that hinders our thinking, our understanding, our love for one another, our love for God. We will stand before God. We'll hopefully have some more answers about the nature of God. We will hopefully have his ear whenever it comes to having these questions answered. And we'll still be in awe even if we do have all the answers. Not only that, but because of The work of God, we are a family united in Christ's body. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are united as one community, one assembly here on earth to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The deep things of God are hard because God is deeper than the hardest of subjects. But the meditations upon the Lord in our mind deeply fill us with awe and reverence. how great the love of God is to even communicate divine revelation to us whenever we have made such a mess out of creation anyway I'll step off the soapbox and say this I hope that the creed moves you to a deeper devotion a deeper understanding of theology and regardless of where you are in your theological walk that you get something out of it and then it could be a blessing to you so you guys have a great week, and I hope you enjoy through Nicaea as we go through the Nicene Creed as it was in the Creed.